Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I am the host, Cindy Howes. Nice to be with you. And if you are listening in real time, it is our annual fundraiser. It's happening now. Uh, And you still have some time to get your Basic Folk Hotties 2023 wall calendar. We're now offering that as a gift of $5 a month or a gift of $60, but you heard all about it at the top of the podcast. If you contribute now and want the wall calendar, you might get a little bit after the first of the year, but we'll still get it out to you. Okay, uh, another way you can help us out is sign up for our monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. You can follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. Very happy to have Zach Williams of The Lone Bellow on the show today. Huge fan of this band. Their latest from the Nashville-based New York-bred and Georgia-born trio Love Songs for Losers was recorded at Roy Orbison's creepy former house in Hendersonville, Tennessee. The house's vibe bled its way into the vibe of the album, which was co-produced by band members Brian Elmquist and Kaneen Pipkin producing vocals. The band went for a bombastic sound, and they did it with no adult supervision, read, no outside producer influence. Frontman Zach Williams expounded on the experience along with his affinity for the house's architect, the eccentric Braxton Dixon. We talk about a few standout songs from the album, including Gold, which takes a look at the new small town life heavily impacted by the opioid crisis, Honey, a sort of poking love song to his wife, and Homesick, which serves as the theme song for his new renovation program, The Williams Family Cabin. The TV show features Zach and his wife Stacy flipping a cabin outside of Nashville and all the antics that come with it. Zach is familiar with the world of home renovation shows, thanks to his close friend and home reno personality, the designer Leanne Ford. He actually got some good advice from Leanne prior to starting the show, but neglected to listen. LOL. Zach's a really fun person to watch on stage. He's a remarkable showman. Catch The Lone Bellow live if you can. The new album is fantastic. That creepy old matchstick house must have really worked wonders. We're going to take a listen to Homesick, which is the theme song to Zach's new show, like I mentioned. And then we'll get to our conversation with Zach Williams of The Lone Bellow on Basic Folk. I watch the sunset through the grass blades My bats were coming in the dance on my street My jeans were still wet From catching crawdads And all the lightning bugs were lightning just to be It's a short life But it's a good life for my family and me 
Thanks for talking to me today. It's so great to see you. Yeah, you too. Thanks for coming to the show last night. Oh my gosh, it was so good. It was like, um, I was talking to my wife and I was like, these are the type of shows I want to go to. Like, we saw this, like, um, I won't name any names, but like a very like artistic singer-songwriter. Not to say that like Lone Bellow is not artistic, but it was very like esoteric and I was just like you know, dying bored at that concert, but like your concert, I was just, I'm always just like so sucked in. So every, you know, every chance I get to see the Lone Bellow, I'm going to take it. Um, In fact, uh, Lone Bellow celebrated uh, the 10th anniversary since forming as a band, I think in last year it was, you you, uh, formed in 2011. Oh yeah. Um, And you and Brian, I think have been friends for 20 years. Um, You have known and worked with, uh, Brian and Kaneen so closely and it seems like we've talked about this before that you all really like like each other and love each other um, but let's talk about like has there ever been a time when being in this band might have been challenging have there ever been mm. any close calls when it comes to like parting ways and if not like what keeps you all coming back to the lone bellow yeah um, I think you know when we went in to make the second record, I think that second record like is always just hard to make. Like for us, our first record, we lucked out and we, you know, it hit the billboard charts and, you know, did all the fancy stuff that it was supposed to do. I can't remember what, but (laughs) um, it did all the stuff that like, I had always dreamed of that like got me on the road to be able to play music full time. Um, and when the pressure making the second album came up, that sophomore pressure was like a a real thing. Um, so I got like pretty, I got pretty like controlling and worried and, um, it was like pretty hard to be around. And we made that record with Aaron Desner and, and, he definitely helped. Um, but I think that there were some moments there where the band was like, man, this isn't fun anymore. Um, it's mm. kind of, this kind of is a bummer. And it's funny, you know, that stuff always, it always comes out like either in interviews or in like VIP meetings. So it's almost like we never talk about that stuff. And then somebody asks a question and then somebody answers in the band. And then you're like, whoa, Afterwards, you're just like, wait, you feel that way? <laughs> and that just came <laughs> out with that with that person at VIP's question. Um, uh, yeah, so that was a challenge. And then another challenge was on the third record. I mean, right before, um, right before we went in to make our third record at RCA Studios in Nashville with Dave Cobb, um, Brian, like almost like really accidentally almost hurt himself really bad. And, you know, he ended up 
he had to go to rehab for a month and that was like really, you know, scary and, um, confusing and hard. And, um, and especially it was because, you know, while we had the, the studio booked too, and, um, but he came out of that and it actually made us like so much stronger. Um, and now, you know, we're about to release our fifth record. Um, it's the first one that we self-produced and I feel like I, I can't say like professionally if we're doing better musically. I mean, I think musically we're doing better, but our bond is definitely stronger just as human beings mm. than it's ever been. The band's origin story is based around a horse riding accident that left Stacy temporarily paralyzed and she was recovering. You started turning journal entries into songs and then, you know, the story of the Lone Bellow kind of grows from there. What was your journaling process like versus like what it's like now and how do you think being a songwriter impacts your journaling? Yeah. Um, that's where I started, that's where I started, like, writing songs. I, um, I was, you know, just going through kind of, like, shock and grief and trying to figure out how to take care of Stacy. and my friends would come up and visit, and I would read them these, like, kind of like just like free writing expressions um and they were like man you should learn how to play the guitar and sing at the same time and try to make these songs so i did uh, and um you know i went i found this open mic that was just down the street from the hospital we were living at in atlanta and um I just started going and singing these like nonsense songs to strangers and um <laughs> yeah it it became like a really cathartic thing for me and and that's when I like fell in love with songwriting and um and I moved to New York after Stacy got better we moved to New York and I just, I played shows for several years um, on my mm. own, made a couple records, and um, and then, so that was like 2003 was when she fell, put the, we, mm. the band released, uh, put the Lone Bella together in like, what, 2011, um, yeah, and I mean, I think when we put the Lone Bella together, it was like, I think I was at the point where I was like sick of doing uh, my solo project, and I, I, I had they were really nice guys. They were all Canadian. I had all these Canadians in my band, and they were just so polite and said too yes. nice. Yeah, just said yes to everything. And I, I wanted to, like, be a part of something. So that's when we put the Lumbella together. Hmm. Yeah, the new album is Love Songs for Losers, and you were 
talking about how you've always seen yourself as a loser in love, yeah. um, which I was like, oh man, I can't wait to talk to Zach about yeah. like how he feels about being a loser. So like, what do you mean by that? And like, in what other ways do you feel like a loser? <laughs> I feel like I can boil it down. And it's a song that I sang last night. It's like the quietest song of the night. It's a song that like we probably are going to lose the crowd, <laughs> but we wanted to try it anyway. <laughs> but um, there's this new, this new song that we just released called Unicorn. And the lyrics of the song... Um, they kind of they kind of express someone who like is trying to express how much they love somebody but like their words fail them um so like the chorus or it doesn't really have a chorus that it's just four parts which is really fun too i've never really done that before um but um the main part that we'll call the chorus is like I was kind of thinking I could tell you my feelings, sit you down and wreck you with some words that are pretty. I could say I love you, but it's such a bore. I think God made a unicorn. And the whole song is kind of about that, right? And um, I've never been able to truly, in the moment, like whether I'm talking to the person, like my significant other or like a best friend or my kids or my parents, um, whenever it hits that moment and I'm like, I want to tell this person how much I love them. Like I kind of fall into like a, I love you, man, kind of thing. I, I words mm -hmm. always fail me. And I, and I wonder if that happens with a lot of people. So it's, it's kind of like a, in case you feel the same, this record's called love songs for losers, like kind of thing. Mm. Wow. I so relate to that because <laughs> um, it seems like the words aren't big enough for these feelings yeah. that you're experiencing. Yeah. I mean, Michael Bolton mm -hmm. did this like back in the day. He's like, said, I love you, but I lied. This is more than what I feel inside or something like that. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, we, we, I would listen to that and like laugh because he's like a human saxophone you know, he's Michael Bolton. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a, a, there's a part of it that, that, that's true. But, it, mm. but mostly it's supposed to make someone, like, you know, maybe not laugh out loud, but just giggle. Definitely. I think it's a perfect encapsulation of, like, the Lone Bellows kind of twisted humor. <laughs> right on. I also love the cover... Everybody is like kind of dressed up fancy, but you're just like slouching. Yeah, it's kind of like a, yeah. yeah, it's like kind of like the end of the night, end of a party, <laughs> where the last one's there, sitting on a Ugh. ugly, ugly couch. couch yeah, is hideous. The last ones at the party is rough. It has been a long time since mm -hmm. I've been the last person at a party. Jeez. self-produce and it seems like just based on what I've read it seems like 
approach this project with the intention of being kind of like over the top and huge with its sound. Yeah. Um, you're saying that the songs are looking at bad relationships and wonderful relationships and all the in-between, sometimes with a good deal of levity. Um, so in what ways did the inspiration for the songs, you know, if you're talking about like a good deal of levity, um, how did the inspiration impact the hugeness of the record's production? Yeah. Well, first it was the physical location of where we made it. We... You know, we found Roy Orbison's old house that was right next to Johnny Cash's old house that burned down and right across from the street where, in Johnny Cash's mother's house where where he passed away. The front yard was the orchard that Cash made for Roy after his sons died in a fire just a lot of houses burning down what's crazy is it was all the same builder this, this guy braxton dixon built all the houses but we found out that no one lived in roy Orbison's old house we reached out to the owner like cold called him he lived in chicago and he gave us the house for two months we made it a studio and i think like definitely being in that huge creepy beautiful old house feeling the spirit of Roy Orbison and just all those huge big melodies that he had like crying and everything I think that definitely like made its way into this music um and um and I <laughs> this sounds ridiculous but like I went through a phase the past couple of years where I just started listening to like a lot of Michael Bolton and Brian Adams and like basically anybody who could have been in line to do the Robin Hood soundtrack back in the nineties. I just like, <laughs> I went down this rabbit hole and I, and I found like, I didn't look up who wrote all the love songs, but the love songs back then are just completely over the top. Like I'll be yeah. a hero. Like, it's just like, um, it's endearing to me. Um, and I think probably because my brain has it associated with, like, actual, like, movies. Um, you know, like, when the when the arrow goes into the tree in slow motion and Robin Hood, and it's like, that Brian Adams song comes on, like, I don't know. I was like, man, I wanna, I wanna at least make a couple songs on this record that are like swinging for the fences like that. We've never done that before. That, that could be a lot of fun. So, that mixed with Roy Orbison's house really did it. Uh, you made the record in Roy Orbison's former home in Nashville, and you've talked about Braxton Dixon yeah. a little bit. Um, it was designed and built. Who would take? You've talked about him. I actually learned about him from you a while ago. You're talking about how he would take parts of houses from across the country and build them in Nashville. He built houses for Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison. A lot of them actually burned down. Mm -hmm. um, for those who are not familiar, can you talk about what a Braxton Dixon house looks like and why you find them so appealing? Yeah. I mean, Marty Stewart coined the phrase um, Frank Lloyd wrong about Braxton Dixon. <laughs> he, It's like he would... 
he would take apart all these old cabins and barns across the country, and then he would build these large, crazy houses uh, in Nashville for these country singers back in the like 60s and 70s and on through the 80s. They're beautiful and weird, and um, you know none of the wood matches. And there's always a, a spiral staircase somewhere um, that's like made out of wood and there's always a heart that he hides in every um fireplace that he carves in stone Mm. it's just like all these really neat um things but um but yeah i mean so many of them have already burned down but there's still several in nashville and um the first one that he built for roy orbison burned down um, so I can't believe Roy Orbison had him build him another house, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this, this house, it was like seven, it was like 7,000 square feet. But since it was his like party house, there's only two bedrooms and the bedrooms were probably like maybe 400 square feet a piece. And everything else was just like gigantic living rooms. And an indoor pool and all this and wow uh, and it's right on the lake in Hendersonville. Yeah, the houses. I was looking at pictures of the houses and they look like. Um, did you ever see Casper, like the late '90s Casper? Yes. Yeah, it looks like the like the Casper Mansion on the outside. Spot on. Yeah, and if you like, if you're in there and you look at the details pretty close, you're like, oh, this is kind of not done well <laughs> but like the overarching idea is cool but like you know none of the wood matches i got really into this dude and and i went and and met his widow and um she took me on a tour like at, at their main estate there's five dilapidated cabins that he built for all these kids and then his main house where she lives in alone now and she is like she is like gray gardens but in Nashville, she just, she was full of insane stories. And you're like, are you fake crying right now? Or is this, what's going on? Like, wow, just, intense. I love that kind of storytelling. Uh, wow. There's just an incredible amount of history and, um, and beauty. And we, we actually teamed up with um, a company called Double RL and we made a 45 minute documentary about the house called Bread and Jam and you could find it on YouTube and um, we had like all these musicians fly in one like one of Cash's daughters sang and Cedric Burnside flew in and did a song and we had all these folk singers come in from New York and this and that and um, yeah you should check it out it's it's really stunning okay so you and Stacy have a new renovation show called the Williams family cabin, which I have like a thousand questions about. Um, So on the show, Stacy was talking about walking the line of her different like design um, inspirations. She has like grandma chic at mixing that with like modern when it comes to design, which kind of reminded me of trying to like walk the line musically where like, Maybe you want to make this album as big as possible, but I don't know after you 
just pulled out Michael Bolton and Brian Adams if this is actually accurate. Like, okay, you don't want the lone bellow to be Journey. Sure. Right? <laughs> but maybe you'd like it to be like a huge um Bruce Springsteen record or maybe like something else, like something something more like serious, you know, something more reverent. You know. Yeah. So so we did we did those we did a few of those like grandiose, really just like huge swinging up to the fences songs but we also did stuff that we've never done before like for instance like brian sings a song that i wrote the lyrics to called um dreaming and it's like it's really there's no harmony on it it's only brian's voice and a piano it's like in the middle of the record there's this song called homesick i talked about it last night at the show but you know then the night that the night that john prine passed away i woke up in the middle of the night and wrote that song and it's the closest thing to like a front porch pick and hang sound that we've ever done i mean it's like nothing but like it it's it's just like acoustic guitars and fiddles and I don't think there's even drums on it. So like the record has like both sides of the spectrum. Um, mm -hmm. And that quote that you read is definitely Brian's quote. He loves that word levity. Like for instance, and I can't believe the dual tone decided to put this out as the first single, but the first single is, is a song called gold. And it's a song about the opioid epidemic in like small town America. It's kind of all over the, it's not, it's all it's there's many colors to this rainbow. <laughs> um, Brian was talking about how this the band's always been like this weird Pentecostal revival thing that your music was so much bigger than anything shown on record before. And he says this time we turned over every stone until we got the songs exactly where they needed to be. And it sounds like you guys had like no adult supervision while making the album this time around. So what did that feel like? Like, was the freedom ever too much? Oh, uh, no, I don't think so. We just had full reign to sleep there and just work through the middle of the night if we wanted to and just, like, really just feel the whole process kind of, like, come out. And, um, like, especially... I feel like vocally, you know, we've we've never spent this much time on working on the on the harmonies and like literally writing the the vocal parts. And Kaneen Kaneen um definitely like produced the vocals for this record. Um that's probably one of the stones that he's talking about. Because usually when we make a record when you make a record with like a uh well established producer or when I have, they get really into the instrumentation of a song. They're like, all right, uh, you guys do the vocal and then we'll move on to the next song. <laughs> right. Uh, isn't the vocal like the most important part? Um, so it was really great, just like not doing it that way and really focusing forever. I mean, she made me re-sing songs like hundreds of times. <laughs> but she was like, she was like, I know that you can do 
something different or something better because I've been singing with you on stage for the past 10 years. So she like really pushed us. Um, it was, it was great. What did you learn about your singing from Kenine on this record? She, um, two things. One was, um, she really like pushed me into my falsetto more on this record. Usually I'm like belting, right? I'm like, Wah! um, and she wanted to explore like my falsetto. So the other thing was just like, she's really big about vowels. So I would say like land and she'd be like, don't say and like that. That's annoying. Do like land or it's just like little bitty things. <laughs> um, I'm like, okay. But then after the product was done and we started mixing it, I was like so glad that I listened to her. What was it like to, so Brian co-produced the record and Kanine was the vocal producer. What was it like to take direction from your bandmates? And also why weren't you into any of the producer things? I, I kind of like quietly oversaw the direction of everything. Um, and the shadow producer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't really need accolades, you know. I'm like, <laughs> I'm above all that, man. Like, um, <laughs> no, I mean, Brian's kind of the music director of the band anyway. So it just like fit. Like his brain, like even at shows, he's he's thinking about he's thinking about what he's playing on guitar more than he's thinking about singing. I'm thinking about like, are we hosting a night for people? And then I'm thinking about like my vocals. I feel like that was like what we brought into the studio. Like I was, I was thinking about like, yeah, kind of like the vibe of the song and just like the, the like 30,000 foot view direction of what we were doing. Um, and he was in the like minute details of like the exact tone of this fiddle. And then let's make, let's sit it over here in this part of the room and mic it way over here. And, da, da, da. and I just, my, like, I want to care about those things, but sometimes I wonder he cares so much about it that like, it gives me the freedom to be like, it's going to sound good because he's so passionate about it. So I'll concentrate on like, is it the perfect tempo? Is this the right key? Are we delivering the song in like a, in a laid back way or in the way that we like that kind of thing? About the show the williams family cabin it's you and stacy flipping a cabin outside in nashville and it's like part of this i've watched all the episodes and it's really good i've watched like a lot of those hgtv renovation show like leanne's show and um it i just love them they're just like kind of like part of a culture of comfort if you know what i mean to watch those shows um that's well so said what do you yeah, what do you think about that culture and what is it like for you to be part of that? I mean, you know, we we bought this cabin with 
my friends, um, they own this company called Chess at Three, which is this incredible company that teaches kids how to play chess at three years old. Um, and they developed a board game. They developed a board game that teaches kids how to play chess. It's hilarious. Um, I think it's called Storytime Chess. And we were all celebrating. They won the um, they won the Toy of the Year award, which is like the Grammys for toys. And we were like, yay! And they were like, let's let's start an LLC together and start buying property. And Stacy, my you know, my wife has this antique shop in Nashville. They were like, Stacy, you'll decorate it with your stuff at your store, and like we'll just create these places for for people to go and have fun and um, you know, maybe be inspired. Our friends up in New York that own a, a TV production company caught wind of it and they were like hey we'll we'll pay for the renovation of the cabin if, if you let us film so we were like duh okay <laughs> and i remember i called leanne i was like hey i think i'm gonna do this and she was like hey it's way harder than you think it is it's gonna be really time consuming i was like i don't know leanne i don't think so like they said they're just gonna come <laughs> film us do the work we're doing anyway she was like please please listen to my wisdom. And yeah. I was just like, nah. <laughs> so we did it and it did. It took forever. Stacy did not like the um, hurry up and wait vibe of the whole thing. And, um, you know, I'm kind of like the, the color commentator on Best in Show. That's kind of my vibe on, on this show. <laughs> Um, but I think, you know, I used to make fun of it. Like there's a South park that makes fun of these shows and they're like white people renovating houses. I don't know if you've seen that episode, but it's hilarious. Um, but I think that there is like a, this quiet comfort. Like sometimes when I'm by myself, I'll turn on Seinfeld to eat lunch. You know, I'll just watch one episode of Seinfeld on Netflix and just eat lunch. Maybe, maybe it like falls in that category a little bit. I don't know. I, I had never watched the shows before either. I'd never watched any renovation shows. So I, I had oh, wow. no idea. And when I watched this one, I was like, dude, this is so boring. Like no one's going to watch this. And it's like tied at number one on the Magnolia Rec Network with Chip and Joanne show right now. And I'm just like, whoa, okay. People are watching the show. It's good. Thanks. I'm, I'm happy with it. I mean, I, they made it really beautiful, like mm -hmm. the colors and the tones and all of the drone shots and stuff. Like, it's just like mm -hmm. really pretty. So I like that. You've done TV, music videos, etc. But maybe Stacy was mm -hmm. new to this type of public exposure, um, the good and the bad that come with it. How has she found public life because of this show? You know, I, nobody, it's, it's, it's funny to me because um, I guess the show did really well, like in that world. Um, but like, it hasn't, it hasn't changed anything. I, like a couple people have come up to her like at an airport and been like, hey, I like your show. But um I feel like 
those shows are just like such a passive audience. Like, I, I don't know. I don't think anybody recognizes her. Um, she did not like the making of the show, like, because it like messed with her flow of work, um, and, like how she, you know, decorates and and stuff like that. She is really grateful for the network and and the people that we got to meet and, um, you know, the work that it let us do to this cabin that we restored in Nashville. Um, that's, like, it, it's really cool. It's it's on five acres, but it's in the city limits. It's right next to this place called Loveless Cafe. And um, we wanted to make this place that was kind of like a retreat for friends slash strangers that wanted to be needed a place to just get away and be creative and yeah they made a tv show about it and it was hilarious they make me look like a complete idiot um and i mean i i i had a feeling that they were doing that while we were making that's the like show. the archetype for yeah for the for the guy right yeah so i kind of i leaned in i leaned in yeah, I leaned into it a little bit, and uh, I'm I'm happy. I'm happy I did. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn about Stacy from this experience? Well, it was really beautiful, like watching her do her work. You know, Stacy is like she has supported me for almost twenty years now, like, and didn't mind being really broke for a really really long time while I was trying to do music and worked worked her butt off um you know and just like has been with me through thick and thin and then we had all of our kids and she stayed home and I supported the family with music and you know and then the kids got old enough where she wanted to pursue her dream of you know starting this antique store, this furniture store, and she did it. And um, it's been really inspiring, just, like, watching her finally, like, try to do something that she's really passionate about. Hmm. Her stuff is awesome. Does she ship to Maine? Um, she, I mean, I've told her, I'm like, <laughs> you got to partner with, like, a white glove company that'll, like, ship your stuff around I don't know usually Sign people like yeah usually people like find somebody to ship it for them but yeah yeah it was great stuff loved it The theme song for the show, which is also on the new album is homesick and this question is a little bit windy but you wrote that song in the middle of the night, uh, the night after you found out John Prine died. It's not necessarily about him, but it seems like he was keeping you up that night. Mm-hmm. Um, you never met him, but you said losing that voice in our world really meant a lot to me. It surprised me. And I've felt that before for famous people, people that are leaders in certain circles, people um, that are not like personally in my life so can you talk about that kind of surprise grief you experienced with john prine and when that grief has crept up on you at other times yeah i mean he was he was such a 
he was such a listener uh, his whole life, and um, like I think about like it was weeks later, but the New York Times, um, one of the dailies, they dedicated a whole show to just telling like snippet stories of all these people that had died. And one of the tiny stories was John Prine's brother. And he was just like, he was like, yeah, he was just, he was just a real quiet person. And, and, um, the whole time he was just sitting there listening and, and then he started telling us stories and I don't know. I, I mean, I felt like, um, losing somebody that had such an art for listening, um, uh like especially in a way that was so shocking you know he, i mean he he mm-hmm. died of he died of covid and it was heartbreaking and the music community like mourned over my my agent jonathan levine um who's like you know buttoned up businessman he was he called me up just like Balling. I mean, he's like, he was like good friends with Prine and Fiona, and but yeah, I mean, I I I think it just worried me. You know, it was also it was a part of like the first like holy crap wave of people dying. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think that that happened to me when David Bowie died, um, and when Prince died, and you know. Um, I remember when Michael Jackson died. I was in Harlem, and um, and the like, walking past the conversations on the street, on like one hundred twenty fourth Street, uh, people were confused because he had all of the allegations and stuff were like live and real, but they were also heartbroken because this this person that was like theme track to their life it just like suddenly died and they didn't know why and yeah yeah i don't know surreal the song honey is about you and stacy in the early part of your relationship and you said it turned into a song about sometimes wanting to go back when we were first in love and to fight the ability to feel things when there are so many logistics which i think is such a great reminder to put that out there, like, mm. what's that struggle like for you to experience life while you're trying to get your checklist done? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the daily fight. Like, there's there's this book called The War of Art, and I love, this guy always talks about um, the resistance that pushes against anyone that's trying to create anything that doesn't exist yet, and... It can be really, really minor and still like really powerful. And I think that that same resistance lives in a human being's relationship, and and just like the the temptation to just walk around afraid or feeling exhausted but not taking care of yourself all the time, the temptation to to do that, like that, that comes up like every day. Um, mm-hmm. and it, that's, that's the, for me, that's like one of my favorite 
like fights against the unknown is that just like <laughs> daily that daily um like no i'm 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 not just going to worry about uh how to pay for my insurance and and figure out my taxes and uh you know pay the mortgage like i'm I'm going and I mean gosh in america we've 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 conjured up this in, insane need to to want so much um, mm. we've really we've got we've got we got a ball and chain that that the we need to get rid of or <laughs> mm. try to anyway i'm I'm just trying to more about that <laughs> no I mean I'm just like uh no it's just like mostly just like that daily that daily like resistance um mm. uh to try to put yeah you're focused on 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 trying to love someone instead of just them like turning into a roommate and you're just like checking off boxes all day long. Yeah. Um, the song Gold takes a look at new small town life. Amazing song. Uh, small town life now heavily impacted by the opioid crisis. And it's written from the perspective of a guy who's stuck in the downward spiral of addiction. And you're using words normally found in songs about small town life, like Johnny, Main Street, True Love Found in Parking Lots. And it's got that like John Mellencamp, Bob Seger, Killers feel to it. How do you relate to that tradition in blue collar rock of writing about a modern struggle and making it seem timeless. Like, how did you work timelessness into this song? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I think what what I was trying to do was tell the story, like specific, specifically, like from my family, um, from mm -hmm. and and where I'm from, and. You know, I've got cousins that are on the verge of death um, and have been struggling with this crisis for a really, really long time. And um, I, I just, I wanted to kind of play on the, like, Jack and Diane vibe, but, like... Try to Jack is a heroin problem. <laughs> yeah, but like try to um say like well this is this is what's happening in in, in sweet small town America right now. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's really unnecessary. I saw last week that like Walgreens and C V S paid like some quabillion dollar thing. But they also like said like it's not our fault. It's not our fault. <laughs> the opioid crisis isn't oh. our fault. But but they I I can't remember the number, but it was like insane. But yeah, I mean I I I, I um I wanted to use the the language that others have used romanticizing small town American life. Um, but I also wanted to try to um, kind of like turn 
that hard left turn of like, here's what's actually going on behind yeah. the, the closed doors of those little houses and mm-hmm. the underbelly of it all. And mm-hmm. nobody talks about it. I mean, I can at least talk about like from my small town. Nobody, nobody wants to talk about it. Zach Williams, let's do the lightning round. Ready? All right, let's do it. Lightning round. Okay. What is your favorite scented candle? <laughs> um, I can't smell. I I would say, like, hickory. What color is your soul? Brown. <laughs> <laughs> what is your least favorite household chore? Folding the sheets that wrap around the mattress. Oh, God, hate that one. <laughs> what is one song you wish you had written? Um, I Can't Make You Love Me. Who is your celebrity crush? Uh, Matthew McConaughey. Duh. <laughs> if you were not a human, what animal would you be? Rhino. What is your favorite Michael Bolton song? Uh, um, the the one with all the key changes. You know what? It's the one that where he's talking about like, said I love you, but I lied. Ooh, because this is that, that this is more than what I feel inside. See, he did it. Mm. Mm. What is your favorite Bob Seger song? My favorite Bob Seger song. The answer is Fire Lake. Okay, Fire Lake. Or didn't Seeger do the Chevy commercial, Like a Rock? Like so a basic. Rock. That is such uh-huh. a basic answer. It's Fire Lake. I don't, I don't listen to him. I love his t-shirts. I love the t-shirt with the horses, but I you don't listen to Bob Seeger. Go check out Fire Lake. All right, Fire Lake. Okay, this is the last question. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? Um, Shetland Island. Great. Where the Shetland ponies are from. The ponies. The ponies. Uh, Zach, thank you so much. I wish we had more time. It's always a blast talking to you. You too. Thanks again for coming last night. Yeah. I like all of your... I had a question about your hat collection. We'll just have to talk about that next time. There it is. Roberto Clemente. From the Roberto Clemente Museum in Pittsburgh. Thank you again for your time. Yeah. See you next time. All right, next time. Thank you so much for these questions yeah. and helping us out. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy House. Our music composed by Alex Stanton. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. Check out our website, basicfolk.com, or you can listen wherever you get podcasts. Talk to you next time. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. You're the best. Bye.